Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully. Hello and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. I'm Allison Dagnus, a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. Happy summer, Allie. Happy summer, Lawrence. How are you today? I am doing well. How about yourself? I am. I am fine. It is a beautiful day outside. It is uh, late very late June. And, um, you know, it just it feels like summer is is here, like with both feet. I've arrived and I brought a bucket full of pollen. That's, exa- that's exactly <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> I brought pollen and sunburn and mosquito bites. Cicadas. Yeah. <laughs> I brought cicadas. <laughs> We're here. <laughs> Who invited summer? Good God. <laughs> Every every year, whether we like it or not, they show up at our door. Um, so what what are your what are your summer plans? What are your big summer plans? You've already had a vacation. You're living you're living the high life here, buddy. I got to tell you, the best advice I can give to our listeners. And look, this is you know, you don't think of social scientists as being great at, in terms of giving advice about money and you know finances, all those sorts of things, or but, anything, or yeah, really anything. Um, but I will say this. If you want to be able to go on multiple vacations a year, be born to parents who can afford it. (laughs) (laughs) That seems that seems very smart. Take it from Lawrence, who knows my parents are still footing the bill. So wow, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, you've given them so many grandchildren. It's like you know they kind of owe you, right? Like you've given them all of this joy, and they're like, fine. I guess we have to pay for the food and the sand and the the sun and the surf and all of that sort of good stuff yeah i'm actually not i'm not i'm not much of a summer person i don't do heat well i if you want to imagine me in the heat imagine uh elaine when she goes and visits jerry's parents in florida oh my god i love that del boca vista phase (laughs) two i just i love that episode so much because those those are my people like when i was a kid i was at Del Boca Vista phase two. Like my grandparents lived there. It really was. I mean, we would go down and my grandma, Beth, she would, you know, my sister and I, and by the way, we are, we are just so pale and pasty white. uh, And there was not an ounce of sunscreen to be found. Like it was just (laughs) like, okay, kids, like get on your swimsuits and go outside. You know, we were outside for like 12 hours a day, you know, learning how to do back dives in the pool and getting yelled at by the altacockers, which is Jewish for old people. And um, we had the time of our lives. We would come in. I was so sunburned. You could see me on the moon. Like I was like giving off just <laughs> red, red rays. And um, and the advice that I was given was like, get into a hot shower. It'll feel better. It did not feel that better. That does not sound like good it, advice. It was, it was, it hurt. It hurt a <laughs> tremendous amount. And now my uh, dermatologist frequently says, Ah, this is from when you were a kid. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. She's like, yep, that red thing uh, on your back, that red thing on your head. This is from when you, you were a kid because you didn't wear enough sunscreen. I'm like, yeah, I know. Where were the grownups, right? The grownups are like, yeah, go outside. Have fun. You'll be fine. Uh, if you'd like to hear Allie talk more about her time <laughs> in Del Boca Vista, Florida, there's a great story at the end of our mailbag episode where she talks about being invited to a what kind of club would you describe it as? Male strippers, I believe is the best way to put it. <laughs> and by the way, that was 
And that was my other set of grandparents. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. I know. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a gift. Summer is here. So, <laughs> okay. So, you're, so you, uh, you are going to be leeching off of, you're going to continue to leech off of your parents and go on a couple of family vacations, I take it. Oh, for sure. Wouldn't are you? The, are the shorter efforts going to be um, frolicking around at a camp? They are doing a lot of, um, they're doing some day camps. They're doing swim lessons, which is so unbelievably cute. Um, and if you live in Pennsylvania, we have weird seasons here. And so for much of the last couple of weeks, it was like 60 degrees during the day. It was, yeah. And so they're in the pool, just freezing water. I feel so bad for the instructors who are, who are teaching them. And, but the kids you know, couldn't care less. And my little girls were really scared of the diving board Oh, and they conquered it, which was awesome. <gasps> oh, that's so, so great. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah. Yay. So a lot of that kind of stuff, like music day camps and sports and swimming lessons. How about you? Oh, I remember those days. I mean, I remember those days like searching. There was a, you know, like a network of mommies and we're like, what camps are <laughs> around? Um, because when I was a kid, I would go to overnight camp. And because my, you know, obviously my mom was so stellar that she just <laughs> shipped me off to Florida without sunscreen. Um, <laughs> she also male strippers, <laughs> just see male strippers, different <laughs> grandparents. Um, th- th- those male strippers were her parents. Okay, the, please, uh, please go back and listen to the mailbag episode. <laughs> Fast forward to the end. You will not regret it. <laughs> um, my mom was. Um, of the school of thought that summertime was for sleepaway camp for children. And that meant like the day after school ended, you just <laughs> packed all of your stuff up in a gigantic my, trunk. My mother hated me. So. She did. And she, oh, she made no, that was not even like fuzzy. Like, <laughs> like in therapy, we didn't even start with like, I think my mother hated me. It was like, all right, let me just cut to the chase. So mom hated me and I went to camp for like 12 to 14 weeks every single summer and I would get on the bus and, you know, we were dropped off there and that's where I lived for the entire summer. And I was a camper and I stayed there so long. Then I became a a counselor in training, a CIT, and then I became a junior counselor. My my wife and I are weird uh, because... You're just going to edit it right there. That's going to be the end point. <laughs> wife and I are weird. All right. That's our guest I, today. That's is. how I edit you. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I always laugh the hardest at the truth. Uh, <laughs> uh, so recently you and I were talking and you offered me the opportunity to stay at your beach house or your beach condo. And um, you said, you know, it's not huge, so it wouldn't have room for all your 42 kids, uh, but it would have room for you and your wife. So if you'd like to go take a weekend away, and and when you're talking about your mom sending you away on summer camp, my wife and I are weird. The idea of going away from our kids makes us so sad. We're always around them. Seriously? Yeah, we we never, well, we just. Like, okay, here's the thing. I, it's very weird. I know anyone who anyone who knows me knows that my daughters are the single most important thing in the world to me. There's just, I mean, no two ways about it. Like nothing comes close. Oh, I well, yeah, for sure. And also, oh my God, is it great sometimes just to <laughs> get a break? And you and your wife don't have that 
tiny little like, ah, maybe just for, I'm not talking about like for the summer, Lawrence, I'm not saying like, give me, give me your 17 children for the summer and go (laughs) away for the summer. I'm talking about for like a night or two. You don't have the desire just to, just to walk out of a room, just to walk out of a room without 50 people being like, where are you going? What are we having for dinner? What are we having for breakfast tomorrow? What are we, what's camp mom? You see, I did this to myself, but still it's okay. Like, no, and and I'm not, and I'm not suggesting it's like a virtue. I'm not saying that like, and this makes us great parents. In fact, it's probably the opposite. We've probably created like, you know, dependent monsters, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but like, yeah, I mean, our idea of a great night is like, Hey, let's watch a movie together on the couch with the kids. Oh, don't get me wrong. That's my idea of a great night also. And then every once in a while, I just want to walk into the other room without having the Spanish Inquisition behind me. Oh, just walk into the other room. Where are you going? What are you doing? When are you coming back? I'm like, I mean, I go to the bathroom and my my daughter's like, I love you. I'm like, I'm not invading a foreign country. I'm going (laughs) to the bathroom. I will be back in under three minutes. I promise you. You don't even have to pause the movie. I'll be back in time to catch the next scene. Well, nobody on the show knows this because this happened before the show today, but uh, Allie's daughter, Caroline, came into the room <laughs> and I said, I said, Allie, give her your headphones. And I said, uh, Caroline, do you appreciate your mom's stories about you and your impressions? And she seemed legitimately shocked to hear she, this. <laughs> yes, she was legitimately shocked. But what you, what you neglected to say in this windup is what was she doing when she came in? Lawrence, what was she doing? I believe she was trying to offer you money. No. Yeah. Wrong. She's like, hi, do you have a 20? I'm like, hello, we're taping a podcast here. She's like, oh, sorry. I tried to make you sound good, Caroline. Sorry. Real quiet. Do you have a 20? Because that's not at all an interruption. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. And That's we fine. cut all that out. In fact, uh, we had to redo the intro. <laughs> we really did. Actually, you should totally cut it and play it right here. Caroline, um, we're, t- we're taping something. Do you have a 20? For Christ's sakes. <laughs> what are you doing? God. Well, you know what else I have on tap this summer? Do tell. Not fun stuff. I'm going oh. out for tenure this year. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So I got to put that whole portfolio together. Yeah. I have a book that's due at the end of the summer. Oh, God. And I have a whole host of articles that I'm working on. So that's Uh, fun. (laughs) Sorry. I feel terrible complaining that I only have one book chapter, one co-authored article, an outside. See, this is what you're going to get in a little bit. In a couple of years, you're going to start getting outside promotion reviews for people at other universities. Ugh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. No, thank you. Yeah, that's it's a lot. Can you say no? (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, you absolutely can. And in fact, here's a pro tip. You should start a folder in your email that's called things I say no to. And you should try and fill that up. My friend Jan Smith, who is a geographer, she came up with this idea. And because I'm so fiercely competitive, I'm like, I will fill it up. And it makes you say no to things. It's really good. I felt so bad the other day, but I got hit with like an academic press wanting me to review a book. And then I got hit with like three journals wanting blind peer review. And by the, you know, by that third journal peer, I finally said no. And it's part of our professional obligation, right? Like this is just basically a voluntary honor system where we all keep this thing going. Um, But I had to say no. I was like, oh my God, I just got done with my third one. So Right. It's, and, and that is 
some of what we're talking about today. Um, that is it's a good segue. Know, right. Because I'm a pro, Allie. You really are. You do. Kn- <laughs> you know how to I may know how to ride a segue, but you know how to throw a segue. Um, Didn't you crash a segue in Toronto or something? No, no, I almost did. Uh, I almost, almost did. Almost. Yeah, that was one of the many, many times that I've almost, almost hurt random people in Florida. Is there a video of that? Can we post there that? There is not, thank God. Uh, all right. So before we before we get on that tangent, as we are wont to do. It's so true. Uh, we were talking about Peer the topic for today, right? Which is generally scientific literacy, mm-hmm. understanding the scientific method, why we should trust science. We got a great guest on the show today to talk about this. He's written a number of great books about this, the scientific attitude, respecting truth. So, um, and you and I are in a really good position to talk about this because we're at the university, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to both make the determination of what to present as fact in class and how to teach critical thinking in class. Yep. But we're also a part of the knowledge creation process, right? Which is doing research and reviewing studies of other folks. So do you want to talk a little bit about why we should trust this process and what are the the virtues of it? Sure. I'm I you know, I did not even when I started graduate school, I just didn't know very much about it. Um and I think it's important for everybody to know that if we're talking about like hard science or even social science, Anything that is published has to go through the process of being reviewed by a group of a, an academic's peers. And what that means is somebody who is an expert in the area that a paper or a book is written about, they get to look at this ahead of time and it's all, it's considered blind. And what that means is the person is anonymous, which means they can speak very, they can write very freely about whether the paper is good or not. So, and when it's a when it's an academic paper, mm-hmm. the author is also anonymous. Exactly right. right. So if Lawrence, you know, if Lawrence writes a poem, which I don't know if you write poetry, and and you send not going to happen. Okay, you send me your poem. You're like, <laughs> what do you think? And I think, oh my gosh, you know, anything that begins with with there once was a man from <laughs> Shippensburg is probably going to be terrible. I'm I'm not going to be honest with him because you know you're my friend and you're my podcast co-host. And so I'm just not going to be honest with you. I'm going to be like, this is great. Um, but I wouldn't be honest with you. What peer, what the peer review process does is it allows people to be brutally honest, sometimes very brutally honest. And that brings out good results. And just to, to and I'll let you expand upon that, but uh, there's two different directions anonymity can go, or, or it allows you not to go, which is one, you can be too favorable to somebody Mm -hmm. because you think well of them or you have a relationship or whatever, or the opposite of that, which Mm -hmm. is often the case in academia, which is this person doesn't come from an impressive institution. Right. I've never heard of this person and therefore I'm not going to take their work seriously. The anonymity removes that and you just look at what's the work they've done. And there, there are a variety of quality control processes. So one is just the peer review process. Mm -hmm. And there, I think there's generally two rules that I follow. And I think most people follow when they review people's work. And that is one to be completely open. That does not mean I'm going to accept whatever they say. It means I am going to be open that they may have an interpretation that's new, that's completely off the wall. And that holds up scientifically. I am open to whatever they're doing. 
Right. The second part is I am going to ruthlessly scrutinize it, mm-hmm. which means I am going to try to discredit it, not in a dishonest way, right? In, in a completely honest way. Look, if something can't be discredited, ruthless scrutiny is not a problem. Right. Right. If you tell me a fact and I assault it with all of the possible tools of, of inquiry that I could possibly assault it with and it stands up, then I didn't hurt. I made it stronger. I made mm-hmm. you have more confidence in what you found, right? So that's one pr- part of the process. And by the way, when it happens, especially when you're talking about academic uh, articles, it's typically at least two, if not three, experts in the field right? who are all doing it independently. They don't know what the other folks are doing. They're doing it by themselves, right? So that's, that's right. one part of the process. And that idea of uh, openness and ruthless scrutiny, that's actually not my idea. That's Carl Sagan's idea. Um, but I think anybody who's listening to this might be skeptical of that and say, well, I've seen things make it through this process that I don't, I don't think are very good. And that's true, right? So this is only one part of the process, but it's not completely foolproof. Sometimes stuff makes it through that's not the greatest of work. The second part of the process is all this stuff is made public, right? So you publish it. Other people read it. And that's why it's so important when you, when as a, as a lay person, when you're mm-hmm. looking at a fact, you have to think about the weight of the evidence, right? Right. What does all the research say together? Because one study can come out and some really awful media outlet can say, look, a new study says that, you know, eating buckets and buckets of lard is good for your heart. <laughs> okay. Well, the weight of the evidence suggests that's not right. And so uh, once it gets disseminated, other scientists read it. And they try to replicate it. And increasingly, in today's world, a lot of folks probably don't know this, increasingly in today's world, one of the new standards of science is you must share your data. So if some other scientist comes along and says, you know what, that's a really questionable finding. Let me try to run that experiment with the same data. You're expected to share it nowadays. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's you know, science is ruthless in a good way. Right. Right. I mean, and, and eventually a lie or fraud or just more likely than not a bad study mm-hmm. is going to be proven as such. Yep. Right. Yep. That is absolutely true. And, you know, the, the best thing about having this, these processes in check is that they do force not only scientists and academics, you know, anybody who's really kind of in the business of providing information, it forces us to stay honest. Every now and then, you know, you get very bad, you know, there, there are students who don't like you and, you know, you get bad reviews on papers and things like that. And it forces us to up our game, right? I mean, it really forces us to like think critically about ourselves and whether or not we should try and improve things. Um, that's part of the process also. Well, you bring up a really good point, which is you don't have any choice but to engage with this stuff, right? Yeah. So, so I'll give you an example. When somebody, and you, and you know this, so I'm, not, I'm not educating you on this, but for, for listeners who have never been behind the veil on this stuff, when you get, the, the typical response is either from, from a journal, once the editor gets all the reviews back and they make a determination about whether it should be published or whether it should be revised or whether it should be rejected, hardly any articles just get published without any revisions. Right. The most typical response from an editor is rejection. 
And then the second most typical response is, we will consider publishing it if you revise it. Right. And once you revise it, you have to resubmit for another round of reviews. I know. Okay. And now this, but this is the point that I want to get to, which you raised, which is you are forced to engage with this stuff, right? So that ruthless scrutiny that comes back, it's really painful, but you eventually become inoculated to that, right? Because if, if I want to ever get published, which by the way, if I don't, I don't keep my job. Right. Right. That's, that's part of my, the criteria they use to, to evaluate me. I need to, to engage with it and I need to take it seriously because the editors have, because these are experts, right? And I need to address those concerns. It doesn't mean that I have to switch my paper to match the paradigm of, of the, the reviewers. That's not what they're doing. They're saying, here's a flaw. Here's something you did incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Here's something you didn't think about. And I don't have to do exactly what they've suggested I do, but I have to address it in a way that fixes that flaw. Right. You're, you're, you're forced to engage with that criticism in an honest and, and, and fruitful way. Look, and, and, and editors have some discretion, right? Now, look, an editor can't say three people have three experts have said this article should be rejected. I'm going to accept it. That's right. that's unethical. Right. Uh, but an editor can say you must address this in some way. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it. It means you have to respond to it. Right. Right. So it's it's forced engagement. You must respond in a thoughtful way that addresses the problems in a way that's satisfactory to the editor. And again, the editor can't overturn a rejection. Right. But but there is some negotiation as long as you're engaging honestly and and, and um, constructively with with the reviews. You know um, that forced engagement part. I, th- I like the way you put that. That's a really really good way. Of talking about it because sometimes there are, you know, there's there can be context if it is not explained or examined or clarified, you know, that just will push everything kind of sideways. And so that kind of forced engagement will will propel an author to say, oh, okay, you know what? I really didn't do a good job of explaining this. Let me explain it better. And that can that can help save a paper. It could help save, you know, the direction of a book. Um, And so it's not as if the, you know, we've all, I think we've, anybody who has ever done a peer review knows that, that sometimes there are papers that are just bad and, and they just really should not go forward. And that's, you know, that's kind of in their own separate category. Much of the time, it really is work that just needs to be either fine tuned something there's, they're leaving something kind of big out. Um, or, you know, or it's such a good, I I actually did a book review for a, an academic press of a book that was so good. I got so excited to, um, to assign it that I said, like in class, it was so, it was such a good idea. I was like, this is going to be so great. Can I, can, if I, you know, if I get this to you really quickly, can you get it through so I can assign it next semester? You know, because it's (laughs) such a good book. And they were like, yeah, I I guess. I was like, yay. Like it was really a good book. Well, you and I could certainly talk about this all afternoon. Uh, I know that we could because we have before, Uh, but we have a great guest today, Lee McIntyre. I'm a huge Lee McIntyre fan. So, why don't you introduce our guest, Allie? Okay. You know what? I'm a huge Lee McIntyre fan too. And thank you very much for introducing me to him. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. 
Professor McIntyre is formerly the executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University, and he has also served as a policy advisor to the executive dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard and as associate editor in the research department of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. His books, and he has written many books, they include Post-Truth, The Scientific Attitude, and his newest book, which is out this summer, is called How to Talk to a Science Denier. And we will be asking him about that today. Allie, you mentioned uh, Lee McIntyre's new book, which is coming out later this summer. Um, Jonathan Rausch also has a new book coming out called The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. And Lee and Jonathan have a great article in the Friday, June 25th edition of the Washington Post titled, A War on Truth is Raging. Not everyone recognizes we're in it. I would encourage all of our listeners to go read this article. It's a wonderful piece. And I want to quote at length from it here. We should think of this moment with the problems of post-truth and disinformation, quote, not as a momentary partisan outburst, but a kind of epistemic 9-11, a moment when a menace that has been developing for years reaches maturity and displays its full prowess. Attacks on the concept of objective truth are not new. Left-wing attacks on objectivity date at least to the 1970s, with the rise of academic trends such as deconstructionism and postmodernism. Not long after, conservative media began attacking truth systematically. The digital era raised the stakes by making misinformation easy to spread. Misinformation became weaponized as disinformation, not a mistake, but an intentional obfuscation created by those with interests at stake. With the Stop the Steal campaign, the turning point became a point of no return. The most audacious disinformation campaign ever attempted against Americans by an actor, foreign or domestic, and it has been devastatingly effective. Vladimir Putin could only dream of creating so much cynicism, doubt, and distrust. For years, Americans have been targeted with epistemic warfare, that is, with attacks on the credibility of the mainstream media, academia, government agencies, and other institutions and professionals we rely on to keep us collectively moored to facts. Those doing the targeting are nameable individuals and organizations. The first step toward winning the war on truth is to accept that we are in one." End quote. So again, that article is titled, A War on Truth is Raging, not everyone recognizes we're in it. It's a really terrific piece by Lee McIntyre and Jonathan Rausch. It's in the Friday, June 25th edition of the Washington Post. So we are very excited to have Lee McIntyre on the show today. We're both huge fans of Lee's work. And um, we'll talk to Lee right after this pause. Lee McIntyre, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. I would like to begin with kind of a 30,000-foot view of how you got interested in this topic, which feels super prescient and important right at this moment. But it's not as if you started all of this work right now. So you have a lot of research and a lot of history and a lot of expertise in the area of 
um, ethics and philosophy and scientific literacy, which is what we want to talk with you about today. Um, but can you connect the dots between ethics and understanding science for us and for our listeners? Yeah. And Lee, I just want to add, I, I'm very jealous of people like you oh. and like Ar Arlie Hochschild, who was down in Louisiana before the 2016 election and just happened to be there when like all this perfect mm. storm of forces came through. You've been doing this work on scientific illiteracy and all of a sudden it's like the most important thing going on in the world. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm interested to hear your answer to this question. It, it was an accident. What happened was um, I've been interested in philosophy and specifically in the philosophy of science my entire career. And the central question in the philosophy of science is what makes science special? You know, why, why is science better than other ways of knowing? And that strikes some people as kind of a nerdy topic that only academics would be interested in. And for many years, maybe, you know, that was the case. Well, then the world changed, didn't it? Right. Then all of a sudden, I mean, science denial has been uh, there for quite some time and it's been accelerating for a number of decades. So it's not as if this wasn't out there. It's just that scientists tended to say, well, these people aren't worth talking to. And philosophers of science pretty much were only talking to one another. And we're not really interested in the question of science denial. And I was, I was always interested in this question of science denial because it just struck me as crazy that I think that science is such a wonderful thing and that people could look at scientific evidence and say, you know, yeah, what else you got? Or, or you know, and it just, it, it just bothered, I wondered how are they forming their beliefs? And of course, as a philosopher, the inconsistency of their standards for forming beliefs also bothered me. So I kept writing on this same subject, enlarging the pool a little bit every time, uh, you know, started out interested in what's special about science, and then interested in, well, why are there evolution deniers? You know, that seemed like kind of an interesting question. And then, well, what are we up to now? <laughs> Re reality deniers. I mean, now we're people don't believe in vaccines and, you know, climate change, uh, I'm sure was going on back when I first started my career, but, you know, now it's a thing. And so all of a sudden, all of these people are paying attention to why don't we believe science anymore? And that's what I'm writing about. Uh, I, I shifted, my interests have remained the same, but I shifted my focus. Now I'm a public philosopher. I'm writing for a public audience. I hope that my philosophical colleagues still read it. But I want to engage on this, what I think is the most important question of our day. Why do we reject facts and truth when it's right in front of our face? Can I ask a, a follow-up question then to that? What do you think is fueling this fire? Because it sounds like you're saying it's getting, the fire is growing and it's getting significantly larger. What's fueling it? Science denial is now and has always been fueled by self-interest. It's not a mistake. It's a lie. Science denial happens because it's in someone's interest to deny a scientific fact. This Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway tell this story very brilliantly in their book, Merchants of Doubt, where they talk about the tobacco strategy, where the tobacco companies um, 
were, you know, had their hair on fire, worried about uh, this study that was going to show that smoking led to cancer. And they fought it through public relations. This was in the 50s. They fought it through hiring their own scientists at a precursor of the American Tobacco Institute and creating doubt in the public press. And then people started to notice, wow, that worked really well. I wonder if we could do that for acid rain and the ozone hole, and then ultimately for climate change and for COVID and for anything you want. And so this, the idea has always been there that some people don't like the facts of science and they wish they were otherwise. What's new is the realization that they could do something about it through public relations. Now, that's not very new. You know, go back to the 1950s, they were doing it. But what's really accelerated it, what's thrown gas on the fire is social media. Because now you can get that lie not only halfway around the world, you can get that lie three times around the world before the truth gets its pants on. And it, to quote Mark Twain, but, you know, th there's just... um it's it's made it the internet and social media have made it so much easier to lie that the people who have always wanted to lie about science and other things have just discovered this you know wonderful uh, way to to get their side of the story out. Go back to the fifties; they had to take out full page ads in newspapers. They don't have to do that anymore. You mentioned the book Merchants of Doubt. I'm before I ask this question, I'm wondering: Have you seen the documentary yes. Merchants of Doubt? Yeah. That's excellent. It is. Um, and I, I think that's a good jumping off point to talk about scientific illiteracy in the U.S. because uh, they quote this memo from 1950s, 1960s, I'm not really sure, uh, where they say doubt is our product. And I yeah. think there's been probably 10 books called <laughs> you know, Doubt is Our Product. Yeah. That was doubt a tobacco is company uh, uh, memo. Right. And I, I think the effectiveness of that um, uh, of that method, right. Of, of sowing doubt really gives good insight into scientific illiteracy in the U S which is sort of our inability to weigh standards of evidence to, you know, look at the weight of the evidence to understand the conversation of science. So could, could you talk a little bit about, I guess, why scientific literacy is important and also, what are some of the common mistakes that you see widespread among the populace? Yeah. It, it, you know, the, the, I like the way that you framed that, because what you have to realize is that that strategy uh, that the tobacco companies used, the oil companies also used. You know, the, the, it, it's just it, it's, it's been the same. And here it's important to make a distinction. There is scientific illiteracy which I think of as people just don't know. They need an education. They're, they're not used to, to how scientists consider evidence and think they're not, they don't understand what scientists really mean by uncertainty or error, um, why scientists can't prove what they know, but, you know, use inductive reasoning. These, these fall into the category of what I think of as scientific illiteracy. But then there's another problem, which is the creation of scientific disinformation. That's a, think of scientific literacy as the absence of knowledge. Think of disinformation as the presence of false knowledge. And that is extremely destructive and can contribute to illiteracy, by the way. I mean, it, it creates a kind of a confusion about, 
you know, what is a scientific fact and not just, you know, what are specific scientific facts. And doesn't, I mean, I, I appreciate that distinction, but doesn't uh, scientific illiteracy prevent us from seeing actors who are creating disinformation? Well, y- yes. I mean, part of it, b- because, I mean, part of it is also media illiteracy. Right. Just uh, the, the skeptical way of thinking about what it is, where we're getting our information from. So right. scientific illiteracy could be, you know, maybe people who don't realize that um, the human beings and dinosaurs didn't occupy the planet at the same time. Weren't riding yeah. saddles. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like the Flintstones <laughs> model, right? But um, the, the creation of, and I mean, and it's hard enough to get people over that hump. It's hard enough to really get good scientific education where they're not just learning the facts of science, but they're learning how scientists think. I mean, that should be part of scientific literacy, I believe. But then add to that, that they're trying to do it in this storm of disinformation and doubt that is intentionally created by people who are hoping to gum up the works. Now, so scientific, so this is the thing. I'm just going to burst the bubble right here at the beginning. Scientific illiteracy cannot cure this alone because scientific illiteracy, uh, scientific literacy as great as it is, cannot, um, cannot necessarily get you to the point where you recognize disinformation where it's coming at you or where you understand, say, that a study out of the American Tobacco Institute is not as good you know, as a, a study out of, uh, you know, out of Yale. Or the right? Heartland Institute. Yeah. It, right. So, <laughs> so you're yeah, right. So there are, um, there are, we don't just need scientific literacy. We need information literacy. And, you know, I, I can talk specifically about scientific literacy if, you, if you'd like to, because the thing is the disinformation finds a much more fertile ground if the person is scientifically illiterate. If they don't already have a good education in physics or biology or dinosaurs, then it's re- it's much easier to come in and create doubt because they say, oh, oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. If you come to somebody who's already got some scientific literacy, then you've got to get them to unlearn what they think they know. You know, that that's where you're raising doubt because maybe they already know something about it. So I don't want to make it sound like these two things are unrelated because they really are related. It's just that I've heard so many people make the claim recently that what we really need to solve the um, all of these people who are uh, uh, hesitant about getting the COVID vaccine, we need better scientific literacy. And we do, but that is not sufficient because the reason that they're COVID uh, vaccine hesitant has something to do with the fact that they weren't paying attention in you know, science class in school. But it has more to do with the fact that there is just a tsunami of disinformation on the internet that is confusing them. I guess I'm wondering that if if it's not only the speed with which we are getting so much information that is doing damage in terms of having us get too much misinformation, it also is really sort of on a daily basis, like hammering us over the head in terms of dulling our 
um, our impulse control, right? Our patience. We no longer have any patience and science is a long-term prospect. So, you know, we want us to be able to say, okay, we have COVID quick tomorrow. We will have a cure, you know, and that's not what the scientific method says. And yet we know that the vaccines had been, there had been people noodling around with the basis of these vaccines for quite some time. And therefore there was a foundation upon which this research had been done. But unless you're doing all of this research at one time, you could say, no, 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 it's too fast. Like the vaccine has been developed too fast. I don't trust it. Well, you don't know very much about vaccines, um, you know, because it had been worked on for quite some time. And then at the same time, it's like, but why wasn't this done faster? Like, well, that's not really what science is. You know, why is, why is Anthony Fauci saying one thing one day and then something different the next day? So can you speak to speed in terms of it spreading misinformation, which you've already addressed a little bit, and also really doing damage to um, our understanding of science and um, our appreciation of it? What a, what a good question. I'm right off the bat, though, going to challenge the question and say that I don't think it's just speed. I think it's the reinforcement of individual opinion, the speed with which you can reinforce what you hope to be true or what you think is true is the problem. But the, sp- the speed per se is, is not it. It's the fact that people feel entitled as an individual to believe whatever they want to believe because whatever it is that they believe, they can find some reinforcement in some group somewhere on the internet. Now, compare that to what happens in science. Science is a community project. Any individual can come up with any theory, but it doesn't necessarily hold water. Nobody's necessarily going to believe it unless they've got evidence for it and it can survive all the critical scrutiny and testing of one's colleagues. And so one thing that I see happening with science is that people people don't understand how it is, just what the vetting process is for a scientific idea. And so it just seems natural to them to say, well, I don't believe that. Or, you know, well, I have another hypothesis. And then think that they're entitled to kick in the door and have science take this seriously. And, you know, maybe devote some resources and start to test it. But that too is not how science works. I mean, one needs to earn the place at the table with enough evidence, you know, for that the hypothesis makes sense to devote time to testing it. And it's led to I mean, here I'll come back to the speed. It's led to an impatience for any uncertainty. But science is built around the idea of uncertainty. Scientists have to always allow that possibility that they're going to overturn their beliefs based on further evidence, which means that you can never close the door on any scientific theory, no matter how well um, corroborated it is. And it means that sometimes, I mean, the way science works is they correct their mistakes and move on. And so when people hear something on TV from Anthony Fauci or, you know, anyone else about what they've discovered about this new coronavirus that, you know, nobody had ever seen before, and then the things change a few weeks or months later, that's because they've learned something. It's not because they've just change their opinion. And I think that people are not really used to changing their 
views, and they're not necessarily wired into an objective process by which they change their views. And But that's what science does. In addition to all of this, it, it struck me that we're also asking not only scientists to behave in ways that are superhuman, but we're asking them to do so in a climate where it is increasingly unpopular to ever admit you've made a mistake. And part of the scientific method is saying, okay, this went wrong, and now let's try something different. And that absolutely goes right against the idea of never apologizing, never admitting something was wrong, and never correcting it. And so that seems to be very much at odds where you have what science needs to do in a political climate that is diametrically opposed to that. It's it's an important point. I mean, Stuart Firestein wrote a book called Failure in which he argued that scientists learn, and he had another one called Ignorance. I I told him his third book should be called Catastrophe. Um, (laughs) Scientists learn from failure. Scientists, I, I mean, they don't learn, I don't think, very well from fraud. I mean, when somebody intentionally makes a mistake, that's terrible because imagine the resources that are wasted. But failure, you know, good faith failure where somebody thought something was true, they gathered the evidence and it turned out not to be true. The, the science can really, can use that, can move on from that. And, and you know, this is... So I'm going to make a plug here that I think that part of scientific literacy is not just training kids to understand scientific facts. It's training them how scientists think in the face of uncertainty. I remember my own science education in elementary school. We were sort of taught, you know, aren't we lucky to live in the era in which all truth has been discovered? And these brilliant people have discovered this and we need to learn what they've found for us, you know, as if they could never have made a mistake and science was now just done and, you know, closed the book. I I think we should train kids. I mean, young kids to put them in a situation where they don't know something and encourage them. Well, how could you answer this question? What sort of things would you need to know? And how could you find those things out? Then they're thinking like scientists, and then they make a mistake, and they think, "Well, what did I learn from that mistake?" I, I, th- I think if we can get them to, uh, pardon me, I'm, I'm going to plug my book again. Have the scientific attitude, okay? Have this attitude that you are open to new evidence and that you change your mind on its basis. I think that's really valuable. If you think about the content of any science education, it will eventually be eclipsed. Maybe not in that person's lifetime, but later. But teaching them how to think like a scientist, that'll stick with them their whole life. And I think that's part of scientific literacy. It's not just learning about the facts. It's learning how you think about the facts, to discover the facts. Lee, don't have to keep apologizing. If you've written like the great resource on a topic, you're allowed to, you're allowed to cite it. Go ahead. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so peer review for anybody who's uh, unaware, uh, when I submit or when Lee or when Allie or anybody submits one of their articles to an academic journal, 
we submit a couple of files, one with all of our information, the abstract and all that kind of stuff. And then one of the files is just what they call a blinded manuscript, which is everything except for my name and any identifying information. And that goes out to some experts in the field who then try to discredit it. Right? They try to find any holes, see if I've done rigorous research. Uh, they write a long list of comments and they give that back to the editor who then makes a determination on whether or not this means it needs to be revised, rejected or accepted. And then it makes its way back to me and I need to make some revisions before uh, resubmitting it to the journal. So, um, Lee, could you talk about yeah. sort of these different processes, peer review, dissemination to the public, replication, and that maybe yeah. each one of us could give our, our feedback on being on both sides of that, yeah. uh, that divide. Go ahead. It's so important to remember that scientists are human beings who have cognitive bias like anyone else. They want their theory to be true. And they're not necessarily cheating. Maybe they have a blind spot because, you know, they they're, they hope it, it's true. Scientific attitude doesn't isn't just reflected as an individual value, though. It's reflected as a community value, which means that when we think that something is true as a scientist, we have to share it with other scientists who are not necessarily wedded to that theory. And they're going to be rigorous and tested in just the process that you've you've raised. That's what keeps scientists honest. I mean, even if they were honest in the first place, right? It's, it's why science, the scientific knowledge ends up being so reliable because they're checking it, checking it, checking it. And it's not just the person who did it that's checking it. I guess I'll start with the idea that in science, we share our work. I mean, scientists are expected to share their not only their conclusions, but the data uh, behind it um, so that somebody else can try to replicate the work and see if they made a mistake. And then when they submit their study, you know, Lawrence, as you point out, they, it undergoes peer review, which means that the, you know, two or three experts look at the work and see, well, you know, based on the data, would I have drawn that conclusion or does the data support that conclusion? And, Sometimes the answer is no, or sometimes there's just, I mean, it's not cut and dried as we all know, but sometimes there are things that they want them to follow up on or, you know, you know say more here. And so it's this fine tuning to make sure that, you know, what you think is true and what reality is telling you is true are, are lined up. And it's a very rigorous, difficult process to get anything out there, you know, uh, uh, through, through, through this process. But suppose we skipped it. I mean, if we skipped it, then we would be creating the opportunity for people to, to lie because they knew nobody was going to check them, but also to just indulge their own blind spots, to just make those mistakes. I said before that scientists learn from their mistakes. How? Because we find the mistake. And, you know, sometimes people find their own mistakes, but often it's another scientist who will find a scientist's mistake. And then they can learn from them. And the really honest ones will say, wow, you know, I, okay, so I give up my view now because I understand that I made a mistake. And that, you know, that's, that's really rare in, uh, imagine talking to somebody and convincing them. 
And how do you convince them? Because you both believe that the data are important, the evidence is important, and you use that. Think about how often somebody convinces somebody else in a political debate. They don't very often, because what are the grounds for settling it? Maybe there are none, is how they feel. But in science, they have a way to settle disputes. And that's why I have been fascinated with science as a philosopher ever since I started. I read Karl Popper in college because science is beautiful. Science is the process by which we figure out whether we're fooling ourselves about what we think is true. And I wish more of human reasoning worked like that. I uh, I employ you 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 quote Sagan in a few of your books, uh, and I employ um, two of the principles whenever I just I'll just give a little bit of background. I just recently received uh, a request. This is how it happens: a journal emails me at my ship.edu address, and they ask if I'm willing to review a manuscript and uh, the title of the manuscript, not the not the author, but the title and the and the abstract. Uh, and then I say whether I accept or not. And then I have a certain period of time to do it. And I employ the two uh, principles that you mentioned in several of your books, which is openness to whatever idea it is they're presenting, but then ruthless scrutiny to try to discredit it. That's, right? that's Satan's I, idea. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm not trying to discredit it uh, dishonestly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, any idea should be uh, tested against, you know, uh, like the most ruthless scrutiny that only makes it better. That's not dishonest. Right. And if it withstands all of that scrutiny, it's a good, it's a good study. Right. Yeah, but not necessarily, um, perfectly true, but sure, as, we, as we, as we learn, you know, any, any time it, it means that it stood the test of time. It survived that time. And then maybe right. later it will be overturned, but it, but right. it does mean that we, we should give our assent, our belief to something, you know, set the criteria for what we would have to be shown in order to to believe it. And then if that criteria is met, then we believe it. That's what people outside science don't often understand, that you're, they, they think, oh, they're being so scientific because they're a skeptic. You know, I don't believe anything. Well, scientists are skeptical in just the way that you described. Be savage with the idea, ruthless about it. But when it seems to survive the scrutiny, that probably means you should believe it. Doesn't mean that you should claim that it's true because it's not deductive logic. You can't, you haven't proven that it's true. That's just the way inductive reasoning works in science. But it means that it's earned enough regard that we, that we give our assent. And I tell you, you talk to science deniers, they don't get that. They give their assent to what they want to believe. And they have, and yeah. then they call themselves a skeptic. They have the highest standard possible for something they don't want to believe. And they'll say, Oh, well, can you prove to me that the earth is round? Can you prove to me that evolution is true? Can you prove that that vaccine is safe? Boy, that's not the standard. No. And then, but if you put it back on them, can you prove that the earth is flat? You know, you can prove all these other things. They don't feel the need to because they, maybe their belief isn't based on evidence in the first place. That is what is so frustrating because they haven't read Carl Sagan, right? They don't understand that balance between openness and scrutiny. Yeah, ruthless scrutiny is not uh, isn't openness, right? Like if you give me a 
a, a, you know, a free defense system against whatever it is, right? Missile defense system or whatever. I'm glad to have it, right? Because <laughs> it's free and, but I'm going to ruthlessly test it, right? So being open to an idea and, and, and scrutinizing it with, with uh, you know, incredible rigor doesn't mean you want to reject it. No. It doesn't mean that you aren't open to the idea. It just means that you're going to test it and make sure that it stands up, right? Sorry, go ahead, Allie. When we go to conferences and I will present a paper and someone will say, you know what, I think you might be off in this way because did you ever think about this? It's not a personal attack. It's not calling me dumb. It's not saying, you know, you clearly don't understand what you're talking about. It's like, okay, well, you didn't, uh, you didn't look at it from this angle. And I always appreciate that because I'm only one person and I can't look at something from every single angle. And because any area has so many different scholars looking at it, if you crowdsource something and get a bunch of really smart people together to look at it, you're going to cover a lot of angles. And that's that's what, to me, the larger idea of a peer review process is. It's not just sending out that paper. It's also, or, you know, that book manuscript. It's it's the entire, you know, chapter by chapter process of presenting it to a group of your peers who have been researching this stuff for a really long time and know what they're talking about to say, uh, okay, you're so close, but also here's something interesting. And you have the choice of going, well, it's not that interesting or going, oh my gosh, I never thought about it this way. And then moving it in that direction and building upon it. And it's that openness to to say, I don't have all the answers, right? I'm only one person. I can't have all of the answers. Even if I am an expert in my tiny little area of a subfield of a larger discipline, um, let me listen to other people and decide what works and what doesn't, and then discuss this. I feel like that muscle we are losing in this country, just listening to other people and hearing another viewpoint that I may disagree with, but at least giving it enough, you know, enough consideration to say, okay, gosh, ugh, oh, I disagree with that, but you may be right. So let me explore that a little bit more and then come up with a definitive answer to that. And, and, and when we lose that ability, right? If we just say like, nope, I'm putting on my earmuffs and la, 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 it's my way or the highway, then, then we just are, are yelling past each other, you know, like over the void. And, um, and that's to me where so much of our political conversations are and because it's so much of our identity and and now the you know science has been caught up in all of this that's where we get this kind of arm crossing of like nope you can't tell me anything about science because if you do it's a it's a personal affront and then that's too bad um because it shouldn't be no, right no, it should just be more of a larger conversation no, yeah notice sorry. though that it's um when, when people make that claim about politicization, it's because somebody has politicized it, right? Yes. So, mm -hmm. you know, because Trump attacked um, the, the uh, what the science was saying about coronavirus, then he can come later and say, well, you know, this has been politicized. Well, but he's the one who politicized it. It doesn't mean that the scientists are suddenly doing bad work or that they're subject to those pressures, though they, they might be to, you know, to some degree. It means that he's um, ruining it, 
right? He's making it so that the public loses trust in the result of this process, this rigorous process that we've been talking about that the scientists have gone through. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about, um, and I talk about this in my classes all the time, and and I think folks who are sort of extremely online in our in our listener base uh, have heard this ad, ad nauseum. But actually, in talking to regular people and doing interviews and surveys, I actually don't think most Americans know the contours of this uh, episode. And so I think it'd be good for you to explain it, Lee, mm-hmm. what happened. And I think it's a really good illustration of how science worked and how our interpretation of what happened in science didn't. So, on what uh, I, so I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, uh, the Andrew Wakefield vaccine study in the Lancet, I think in 1999, yeah. uh, that caused the firestorm about vaccines. Science eventually works, right? So, the peer review process fails. But, or maybe you could we could we debate whether it failed or not, right? But like yeah. this uh, poor study gets through the peer review process and gets into a very respectable journal. But science works, right? I always tell my students, lie small, don't lie big, right? If you lie small, I'm not going to check, right? Like if you tell me my mom's favorite color is beige, I don't care, right? But if you tell me you found the 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 cure for coronavirus and it's you know more Diet Coke. Uh, I'm going to check that, right? So, science tried to replicate it and they couldn't, right? So, could you tell us just sort of what happened? Tell us a little bit about that article, uh, how it eventually was found to be fraudulent. And then the second part of it is the real failure, which is our understanding of of the American people's understanding of that, that event. So, Andrew Wakefield is an MD um, who uh, from uh, Britain who engaged in this study uh, of whether there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. And he had some co-authors on this study. And um, when it was published, it was immediately attacked as sloppy. Uh, And it was sloppy for several reasons. It was sloppy, number one, because it was such a small study. I think there were only 12 people in the study. Another problem with the study was how the people came to the study. I believe that there was a lawyer involved who helped to, you know, identify people who had already thought that their um, child uh, who was autistic had, that it had been caused by the uh, MMR vaccine that they had recently had. So, I mean, that's already sample bias. So, there were all sorts of technical problems in the way that the study was done that, that was sloppy. Um, in fact, enough that this study was retracted. Now, what came out later was that the study was not only sloppy, it was fraudulent. That Wakefield uh, doctored some of the data that, that he, you know, really, um, you know, committed the one true form of scientific heresy, which is that he wasn't guided by his evidence to his conclusion. He instead knew what he wanted his conclusion to be. They found out that he had a financial interest in a competing vaccine. I think that's maybe why the lawyer was involved. It's it's in my book. I can't remember all the details of it, but this was this was a a terrible thing. And I mean people um 
I think Wakefield lost his license and all of his, the study was retracted and, and his co-authors took all but one, took their name off the study. I mean, it was a huge scandal. And you would think that given that, that it would, nobody would believe it, but no, um, because it was on such a controversial question. And it was this question where people wanted to believe a certain thing was true that now that study is still quoted as if it were um, correct. And now the, uh, so the, the deniers, the anti-vaxxers, uh, you know, if you go to an, an anti-vax conference, which of course they don't call it that, but you know, they will talk about all these conspiracies to suppress the truth about the relationship between the MMR vaccine and autism. And that has been debunked over and over and over again. But the problem with science denial is that their beliefs are probably not based on evidence in the first place. So you can't debunk them with evidence. No matter how many times you debunk that study, they're still going to believe it. Why? Because they want to believe it. And Wakefield, unfortunately, is still held up to be a hero to the community of parents. And my heart goes out to them. I mean, they are, they're afraid and they're, they think that they were lied to and, their worst fears are validated by what, you know, scientists have found, you know, they think. And, and so this is a, 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 a terrible thing for science. Now, you bring up the point, did, did the scientific process work? Yes, it did work. They did find out that the study was not only sloppy. I mean, they figured that out very quickly, but they figured out that it was fraudulent. The problem is that once that genie is out of the bottle on a topic like this, um, the lay public still believe it because they don't trust the science. They don't trust the scientific process. They don't understand the scientific process. There are other examples of similar phenomena where, you know, scientists get excited about whether or not their theory is true. Look at a cold fusion to pick an obscure example you know, from, from several decades back, that, that wasn't fraud. They, they just, but they didn't submit their study to peer review. They went straight to the press with it because there was so much money involved thinking that you could have tabletop fusion. I mean, that would be free energy for the world. Imagine the Nobel prizes, imagine the money, right? So, I mean, that too was a corruption of science, but it wasn't fraud. Now that one was slapped down. Again, science worked, but who was there to continue to believe that that was true after it was slapped down? Nobody, because who really cared? The, the energy companies weren't going to pursue this if it didn't work. And I've got all these books on my shelf behind me called, you know, bad science, you know, about the uh, cold fusion. And, and I don't think that was science at its worst. I think that was science at its best. The scientists found something that was a mistake, corrected it. Even though the people who did the study didn't share their data and they didn't undergo peer review, the other scientists caught it within a few months and debunked it. Now, again, I, that's not fraud. It's not comparable to the Wakefield case. But in both these cases, whether there was fraud or there wasn't, science worked and it was wonderful. What's different in these cases? One is the Wakefield was a result of fraud. And the other is that the public had a stake in a certain outcome being true. 
and they believed it even once the study had been debunked. And that, unfortunately, is the basis, I think, for science denial. It's when people um, are not embracing the scientific attitude. They're not changing their beliefs on the basis of new evidence. They're hanging on to those beliefs despite the evidence. And that's a terrible thing. And, you know, so what do we see science denial about? Evolution, um, uh, uh, smoking and, uh, and cancer, um, vaccines, um, climate change, all things in which somebody's kind of got an interest for things to be a certain way rather than another. That's, that's where it happens. I mean, People don't get exercised about it if there's not some financial or ideological interest at stake. But there's a financial interest at stake in climate change. There's an ideological interest at stake for evolution. The one I can never figure out is flat earth. Where in the world did that come from? Who's profiting from that? Nobody that I can see. What's the ideology at stake that not, it's, it's really, that's a difficult one. But the other areas of science denial, um, no matter what the evidence, people will not give up their wrong beliefs, and, and it's terrible. And the thing I hate about the MMR autism con alleged connection, the fraudulent connection, is that it's, it's fraud. It's that a, a scientist, a, a doctor, had a, a stake in telling a lie about it. I'll give you the next question, but uh, I just want to underscore one point you make which is there is of course a difference between a denialist who's not using yeah. the scientific method. And so science is not going to convince them, but there's a different pool of people. And these are the folks that I deal with in my classroom, which is people that believe and trust in science, but don't quite understand it. And so uh, when I talk about this in my class, I say, this is a perfect example of the weight of the evidence, right? So you've got one bad study, Right, which should be prioritized, you know, down at the very, very bottom, and all these other studies which say something else, and you need to consider the weight of the evidence. This is why we spend so much time in our classes talking about going to, you know, peer-reviewed journals with high impact factors that other scientists have weighed in on, and not the latest thing that, you know, some bad media institution said. You know, four cups of coffee a day will, you know, <laughs> well, see, eliminate your risk of cancer that, or whatever. That's not. Uh, and sometimes when that happens, that's not science denial, that's pseudoscience. Right, that, right. That's when somebody is claiming that, you know, they're a psychic or that, um, you know, homeopathy works or, you know, there are all of these things that, that people want to believe um, and they, their standard of evidence is way off. Well, I love what you say about that, which is your standard of evidence for my claim is here. And for yours as well, because yeah. yours wasn't perfectly true, or there was a little bit of doubt, my thing, which has no evidence, is 100% now true. <laughs> I, I call them, uh, I call them uh, cafeteria skeptics. Yeah. They will go through and, oh, I'm going to be skeptical about this, this, that's and this, good. and this, and what they want to put on their yeah. plate. The rest of it, no, that's okay. I mean, right. I'll wear seatbelts. The flat earthers came to the flat earth conference on a plane. So they yeah. clearly trust science. <laughs> right. I mean, they, they were risking their life on the aerodynamics and the skill of the pilot and, the, you know, jet engine and all sorts of things they didn't understand about, you know, turbulence and airflow. They were fine with trusting the scientists on that. It's just when they got on the ground, then they 
started to say all of these unsupportable, crazy things about the shape of the earth. Now, why is that? Very interesting to me. None of those things would have worked had they been based on the assumptions of a flat earth. Their plane wouldn't have arrived where they were intended on going. Right. It wouldn't have worked in the same manner. Right? I, I, I don't I don't know. I, I've talked to enough of them now that I, I don't know for a fact that they don't have an explanation for for air travel. Um, uh, but now I'm not saying that it's a scientifically literate one, but right. the, my experience with flat earthers is that almost anything you say to debunk them. They've got an explanation for why they've closed the circle. That doesn't debunk them, and they've got another theory about how it works. They don't think we went to the moon. They don't believe in gravity, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they've got these uh, this patchwork of alternative hypotheses with no evidence for them, but that they are sufficient to change their mind about what they think it is. I, I do want to hear more about the I do want to hear more about the flat Earth conference, and I guess it's sort of a two part question. Um, first of all, I, I would like to know more about you going to the flat Earth conference, and I I guess I also wonder when you bumped into people who didn't get on the plane because they're like, oh hell no, because <laughs> science is wrong. Like, did you have a little more respect for those folks because at least they were consistent? Were you like? Yeah, I've okay, never met well, anybody least... like that. I've never met, <laughs> oh, really? I've never met anybody. They were all cafeteria skeptics. Yeah, I've never met anybody <laughs> who doesn't trust science at all. I mean, they're, they, they pick and choose, right? I mean, I've met people who don't want to get on a plane, but I have never met somebody who just blanket rejects all of science. That's why I don't use the word anti-science. Because, I mean, okay. even the denialists don't think of themselves as deniers. They think of themselves as more scientific than the scientists, right? They're not right. anti-science. Yeah. They're, they believe in science fine when it has to do with ibuprofen, elevators, phones. <laughs> I mean, these people were tweeting on their iPhones <laughs> that have satellite wow. internet traffic yeah. about the, the fact that the earth was flat. Um, one of the guys who got off the plane said that his proof that the earth was flat is that he had a carpenter's level on the tray table in front of him. And that after oh, takeoff, God. the carpenter's level, the bubble didn't move. Now, he, he doesn't understand how gravity works. He doesn't understand that you could fly from, you know, Boston to Beijing and you're, you know, you're going <laughs> to, you're, it's not a flat a flight, but the way that gravity works, that level is not going to move. But see, this is the problem. Yes, they're all cafeteria skeptics. They're 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 just not. Uh, that, again, that's why I don't use the term anti science. So they haven't gotten the full Ted Kaczynski. Like they they're 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 all picking and choosing. Like no one has gotten the full like. I I've met people who who object to. Um, various aspects of how science is done but i've never real I'd, i guess i have to read more about ted kaczynski i've never met anybody who just does not live by any scientific knowledge at all so uh describe to us so you've been to these conventions and uh i mean if i were to go i would feel incredibly awkward um i'd feel uncomfortable i'd feel on guard um, talk to us a little bit about being at these conventions yeah. some of the arguments you hear your attempts at yeah breaking through, all that kind of stuff. 
when I wrote The Scientific Attitude, I went out on the road to give talks about it. And people would say, what can I do to, you know, I'm convinced by your book, what can I do to, you know, fight back? And I would say, well, you know, talk to people that you disagree with. And I thought, how come I'm not out there doing that more? I mean, the people who come to my talks are people who maybe already agree with me. So I, I booked a ticket to go to the Flat Earth Convention in November 2018 in Denver, Colorado. And I went incognito. I didn't want them to know, you know, I was a philosopher of science studying them. I just wanted to go. And I spent that entire first day um, with my mouth shut, just listening to what they had to say. And the second day, taking people out to dinner, talking to them when they came off stage, you know, really engaging. And they were happy to talk. They loved it. Um, it was uncomfortable. There were 650 of them in one of me. And there were other people, maybe incognito in the audience. Um, there was some media there, you know, at the beginning. But they are um, a flat earther will tell you. I went to the Flat Earth International Conference. The Flat Earth International Conference folks will tell you that they used to believe in the global earth, but that they were convinced to give it up. Now, they are unselfconsciously believers in conspiracy theories. Flat Earth is maybe the ultimate conspiracy theory because they think that we didn't go to the moon and, you know, that this is it's all been faked by uh, government officials and other people who are in power who are trying to you know, hide the truth of the shape of the earth from the rest of us. Um, more than one person quoted the movie, The Matrix. You know, they've taken the red pill. They know the truth and they're trying to wake the rest of us. And so they're not angry. They're just, they think that they're the elite who have been woken to find out the, that the true, the, the, the world that has been pulled over our eyes is fake, you know, to quote The Matrix. And so they're very animated and very engaging to speak to, but it is very disconcerting. Because um, you you very quickly realize that this is it's not a scientific view, but not just because they don't have the evidence to support it, but because it's part of their identity. This is not just what they believe; it is who they are, and so you cannot convince them by giving them scientific facts. Now, so there is the challenge. Um, because how do you do it? And so after I did this, I then went out on the road to talk to climate deniers and other people and you know, did a lot of reading about this and figured out that the way to convince people is not to ram facts down their throat. They just will push back. They just, it won't work. The way to convince somebody is to show them empathy and respect and to listen to what they have to say. Doesn't always work, but that's the only thing I think that can work. And I have seen this strategy work, um, not just with science deniers, but with other forms of ideological, uh, uh, you know, extremism, uh, other, you know, closely held identity beliefs. This is this is the method that they use to talk people out of cults. This is the, you know, this, this is really, uh, so I didn't come up with this. I discovered this 
half through trial and error and half through reading about how people have done it in other ways and thought, okay, you know, can this be applied to science deniers? Now, here's the problem. The reason you show empathy and respect and listen is to build trust. How do you build trust when you fly into this convention and they think that you're part of the elite cabal of people who are paid by the devil to hold this truth away? It, it, it is, you know, but I mean, but you can build trust by meeting them, by being there in person. I think that I did some good in that way. I did not convince anybody to change their mind on the spot. The, because the other thing is it takes time. You know, you build trust over time. And that's how you get people to change their mind. I did have luck, though, with one um, important strategy. It's a philosophical strategy. I didn't share evidence because they're not going to be convinced by evidence. I'm not a scientist. They're not a scientist. If I explain how gravity works, they're, they're, it's not going to work. So instead, I used a question from Karl Popper, uh, the great philosopher of science. I said, um, Okay, so your belief is based on evidence, correct? And yes, absolutely. I see. So even though, and most of them were evangelical Christians, this is not a faith-based belief, right? No, it's not faith-based. It's evidence-based. Okay, so tell me what evidence would convince you that you were wrong? A complete silence. Now, a scientist would not be silent in the face of that question because their beliefs are based on evidence. And they could tell you, well, if you found, you know, this, this and this, I would give up my belief. The flat earthers could not do that. Uh, they tended to say, well, proof. And I'd say proof. That's not how science works. That's, you know, proof. The, uh, so my, my greatest story, my greatest uh, uh, moment at the Flat Earth Convention was when one of the guest speakers who was giving a seminar on how to convince people to believe in flat earth and was using these same techniques on the globalists. I took him out to dinner. He was a very intelligent guy. I liked him. I paid for dinner. We talked for two hours and it was a great learning experience for me because whatever I said, he had an answer to it. But he was smart enough to understand that he looked terrible because he couldn't answer this question of what evidence would convince you. And so I finally boxed him in because I said, well, it sounds to me like your view is based on faith. No, no, no. This is based on evidence. And so he finally said that, you know, if we could go up, if you could go up into a rocket ship up above what they call the Kármán line, 60 miles up to see the curvature of the earth, that would convince him. And then he said, well, no, maybe the window's curved. You know, I mean, nothing was going to convince this guy. So I finally said, and I'm, I'm going on too long, but this is my favorite flatter story. Um, he, I finally said, okay, you guys don't believe that Antarctica is a continent. You believe that Antarctica is an ice wall around the perimeter of the earth, which is what keeps the water from falling off. But I think Antarctica is a continent. And you claim that there are no flights over Antarctica. But I have found one and I pulled out of my wallet a, a, a flight from South America to New Zealand. And he said, have you been on that flight? And I said, no, neither have you. Let's take it together. And he agreed. And we shook hands. And I thought, oh, man, 
uh, this is going to be, I can write about this in the book. I can, you know, crowdfund for the trip, you know, it's going to be great. And then we both got to thinking about it. And I said, we'd better come up with a criteria because I don't want you to come back from the trip and say, oh, the windows were curved, you know? So we better think of something that we can both agree on as a scientist, you know, think like a scientist, what would be our criteria of evidence? And I said, how about if we make it from South America to New Zealand, you know, in one piece without stopping to refuel, because there's no place to refuel in, in Antarctica, then I'm right. Because, you know, you, on your view, it's the, the Antarctica is 24,000 miles. You know, it, it's the, the circumference of the earth, you, you know, around. And, and, you know, how could that or maybe I've got my numbers wrong, but I mean, it's the long way around. We'd have to stop to refuel. There are no direct flights from New York to, you know, to New Zealand. You just, you can't, you have to stop to refuel. And he agreed again. We shook hands. And then was the moment of truth. He, he took it back. Five minutes later, he took it back. Not even that long. About a minute and a half later, he took it back. And he said, I can't agree to this. And I said, why not? And he said, because maybe the um, idea that planes need to stop to refuel was a hoax, <laughs> that no plane ever had to stop uh -huh. to refuel. And I said, you know, he explained a little bit. And I said, so what you seem to be saying to me is that the entire history of air travel since before you and I were even born has been a hoax set up against the day when I would be sitting here having this conversation with <laughs> you and try to get you to agree to give up your belief in flat earth. And he said, yes. Oh, no. <laughs> what low stakes. Right. So, so that, that is the problem, right? That, that, that is the problem. And I didn't just get up and walk away. That would have been rude. We continued our conversation. But that is the challenge, okay? That was great. But before we go on, I don't want to let liberals off the hook. Okay. Uh, so we've... We've talked about flat earthers. We've talked yeah. about climate change, evolution. Uh, in a number of your books, you talk about, um, and I don't want to go into this now because it's a very long conversation, but yeah. ideology and the social sciences right. and around uh, a variety of topics. Uh, but one of the ones that I love you talking about yeah. uh, is you say you go around the country and you're you're talking to mostly liberal audiences, or at least left of center audiences, right. and they're shaking their head. Yes, evolution denial. That's stupid, right? Like, uh denying vaccines and this and that. And then when you get to GMOs, <laughs> what happens? So, and I've got a chapter on this in my new book too. Uh, GMOs, people really don't talk about GMOs very much in the context of science denial. So what you find is that people believe with no scientific evidence that GMOs are dangerous to eat. Now, there are some things that are um, maybe, maybe we just don't have enough evidence yet. That's what people you know tend to say. But the problem is that this has been studied and it has been tested. And there is a lot of science denial about the subject of GMOs. And a lot of it is due to liberals uh, who get very testy about the idea that what are you talking about? What are you saying that I'm, a, you know, a science denier? But you have to be careful because there's something called the precautionary principle, right? I mean, you you have to be 
So, I mean, I've had a friend say, you know, look, it's not that I have evidence that GMOs are unsafe. It's just that I don't want to eat them and I don't have to eat them. I can make another choice. But then my question is, but how isn't that like an anti-vaxxer, right? Isn't isn't that the which thing? is kind of like the precautionary principle you, of yeah. parents who are scared for their kids, That's right? right. Yeah. So, so I mean, so we can you can have a really good conversation about that with with somebody, but the the challenge, and I mean, my my job is not to make anybody look foolish; it's to show that science denial is not a partisan question. Now, science can be politicized; COVID sure was, but. We all liberals and conservatives have the same cognitive biases. And just because you're a liberal doesn't mean that you're immune to science denial. If you look at the statistics, a healthy proportion of anti-vaxxers um, are liberals. Uh, you know, and with GMOs, um, there the numbers, I think, are, are a little bit more difficult to come by. But let me say, it, I can't say definitively that most GMO deniers are, are liberals because I, I don't know that to be the case, but a, a healthy percentage of them certainly are. And, and again, I and you, you get a lot of pushback when you talk about it. In the on, new on book, the road, I've right? got a chapter called yeah. um, "Is uh, Is There a Liberal Form of Science Denial?" And then, I, and I talk about GMOs. So I, I really was, you know, very careful and went into some depth about this because what I don't want people to do is to feel like, well, science denial is somebody else's problem. Because if you think right. of, if you think about it in the right way, it's not just a question of percentage. It's a question of if being liberal were an inoculant against science denial, then why are any science deniers liberals on any subject? But look at evolution. Look at climate change. There are liberal people who are still denialists about those topics. So um, I, I, I make the argument in, in several places, really every chance I get that the best way to fight science denial is to fight it in yourself. You know, not just to try to convince somebody else, but to make sure that your views are uh, with go uh, undergo some uh, scrutiny, some, some testing that, that, and, and that you, that we as individuals embrace a scientific attitude and say, what could change my mind about my view? So I, and I mean, I get excited having these conversations. I went out and I found people to have these conversations with me. I mean, some people avoid these conversations. I went looking for these conversations. I went to rural Pennsylvania to talk to coal miners because I assumed that they were going to be uh, climate deniers. No, the climate, the, the people that I spoke to were not climate deniers. They, they were coal miners, but they were not climate deniers. And we had a really fascinating conversation. I, I pursued my friends who I thought were going to be likely to be, uh, who, who I knew were liberals and were likely to be GMO deniers. And I pursued them. And they didn't really turn out to be deniers in the classic sense. But but again, we had really interesting, fruitful conversations. So the, the subtitle of my of my uh, book is Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. And it's really a book of conversations. It's intended for the general public. It, you know, it's a trade book. And it's about how you talk to somebody that you disagree with. And, and here's the secret. I don't think it just applies to science denial. I think it applies to 
uh, January 6th denial and, you know, uh, voting denial, you know, that the election was rigged in favor of Biden denial. But how do you have those conversations without people punching each other in the face? Um, People might think that's impossible. But again, on the shelf behind me, I've got a book um, um, called Rising Out of Hatred, which is about a white supremacist who was converted out of white supremacy by this method. Again, I didn't invent this. I learned about this from other people. Uh, Daryl Davis is a um, uh, an African-American blues musician who converts people out of the Ku Klux Klan by befriending them. You, you do not convince people by anger, insult, and facts. You convince them by uh, talking to them, by respect. And I'll tell you this too. That's why I make a I make a point in in the uh, in my new book that these conversations are best had face to face. The worst yes. way to convince somebody is in the comment section on a newspaper or exactly. social media. Social media, it's online, face to any face. Place. Yeah, you're relating as a human being. You build trust, right? The flat yeah. earthers that I met at the convention, almost to a person. They were radicalized by YouTube videos. Um, how do you get them out of that? May, I don't know, maybe more YouTube videos, but I, I think it's face to face. I think we have to not avoid difficult conversations with people who disagree with us. We have to be humble and sit down and have dinner with them and talk about it. And don't avoid the hard subjects. There's a really good um, book out now by Amanda Ripley called High Conflict, mm. and and she addresses this um, head on and, and talks about how we have just worked our way into this, you know, fast, angry, you know, comment first, comment loudest, yeah. you know, kind of nobody's listening sort of place. And she ends the book by giving this wonderful example of a group of very liberal Jews from New York who have an exchange program with conservative Christians from rural Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so the Jews first fly out and they stay in the homes of the Christians in Michigan for several days. And then the Michigan Christians mm -hmm. go to New York for mm -hmm. several days and, um, and, and visit the liberal Jews and how just being face to face with folks and listening and talking yeah. and learning. And, and it just, it helps, right? It does. Because when you could put a, a face and a name with something, it's so much more difficult to demonize you, you that person. Yeah, you, you, you know? don't hate them, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you like them more, you trust them. You you can at least relate to them as a human being. And it's the antidote yeah. to the news silo. It's the That's antidote exactly to right. that false, yeah. you know, well, I'm getting all of my news from Fox News or, or all of my news from MSNBC for that matter, right? I'm getting all of my mm -hmm. news from one source from people that I really don't know, but I've grown to trust because I see them so often. But am I really engaging my critical faculties? You know, it's so right. one way on the TV or, you know, other media. But but when it's a conversation, you talk to each other. I'd like to be, to be able to do what Daryl Davis does. I'd like to be one of these people that is so 
persuasive that, you know, that I can do this. And I suppose, you know, I, I've written this book called How to Talk to a Science Denier. Um, I'm hoping that this will help other people learn how to do it because I think the method works. You know, this idea of don't um, just remember that it's about identity. When you're attacking their beliefs, you're attacking their identity. And people are going to hate you if you do that. So, so don't attack. Listen. And I think it's a, you know, it, it might even be a good place to to end, but it takes time. Yeah. And and it may not be that you lack the skills. It's just that you lack the time. And so the value of your yeah. book is that when people read it and they bump into their neighbor, you know, who has a very different worldview than they yeah. do. Um, you know, it, they're not at a conference at a two day conference and then, you know, they meet somebody and talk to them for an hour and they go, you know, yeah. they're their neighbor for years. So the value yeah. is building up that trust and building up that respect over time. And much yeah. like the scientific method, uh, which takes more time than yeah. perhaps we want to do. Um, for, this press does too. Thank you for putting it that way. Cause that helps me to realize that what Daryl Davis does and, and what happened with Derek Black, the subject of yeah, rising out of hatred, is it was over time with people that he grew close yeah. to. You go into a convention in which people are becoming radicalized and you're the only one who doesn't believe it. You talk to them for an hour. What do you expect? You know, is, is that right. really going to work? But, but I, I have to say, I was pretty hard on myself when I got back thinking, you know, it, it, is, is this really going to work? But then I started to read about other people. And I tell some stories in the book of people who have changed their mind on scientific topics through this method. And so I, I, I think that it works. All right, Lee. Well, the new book is How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. When will it be released? When can we get it? Give us your one final pitch for this book before we let you go. Um, it's it's going to be published on August 17th, and it should be available um, at bookstores or online, where wherever you uh, you want to find it. Leah, can we, we get you to commit right here, right now, that you'll come back in August and we can talk to you again? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, we'll we have you on you. tape. That's you right. Know, that means that's, that's, it's a commitment. That, but I'll deny it still. <laughs> <laughs> Deep fake. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Hey, uh, Allie, I love talking to Lee. This has I been great. I do too. Yes. Thank, thank you, both. you so much. Thank you both. This, uh, I, I enjoy doing this too, and uh, it's a good, good conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again
happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.